0: now let's turn to our passage it's going to be isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 to 11 and we are now starting our new series on advent and we will be going over this for the next few weeks and we're going to go over isaiah i'm sure pastor bill will explain the intro of this but we will now be looking at isaiah to meet our king jesus Um, allow me to read Verse 1 to 11 of Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Good morning.
1: My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And as David said, we are beginning a new series today for Advent in the book of Isaiah. Now to actually introduce that series, I I wanna back us up in time, several centuries before the time of Isaiah. I wanna go back to the time where Moses had already led the Israelites out of Egypt, but he had not yet brought them into the Promised Land. That job was reserved for Joshua. Now, right before Joshua brings the people into the land, he's there to carry out God's judgment against the people who had been there because of their wickedness. And right before he attacks Jericho, the first city, he sees a man standing there with a drawn sword. Joshua goes over to that man. He asks a question that could have come right out of the United States in the year 2020. He asks the man, are you for us or for our enemies? It's a boundary setting question. Which side are you on? Are you for us or for our enemies? Are you friend or foe? Are you with us or are you with them? It's the kind of question that you could imagine would come from our nation as we are so strongly divided in so many different ways, in so many different kinds of issues that go back decades, even centuries in this country. And so we ask questions like this. Are you for us? Are you on our side? Or are you on their side? Are you for our enemies? And the man responds by saying this. Are you for us or our enemies? Neither, he said. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua understands in that moment that he's in the presence of the Lord, that the commander of the army of the Lord is the Lord. And so Joshua falls on his face, worships the Lord, and the Lord receives his worship. It's really his God who's standing there. And now think then about what God has just said to Joshua when he says neither. Essentially, what he is saying to Joshua is, am I for you or your enemies? Joshua, that's the wrong question. It's not about which of your two sides I'm on. The real question is, are you on my side? I have now come. I'm not bringing my army so that you can co-opt it for your agenda. I have my agenda that I'm carrying out. I have graciously invited you to take part in what I'm doing. But that means then that the question, Joshua, is, are you for me? or for those who are against me, for me or my enemies. I don't think we can hear that point of that passage too many times in our present circumstances. The point that we already have a king, you and I have a king, a leader who has his own agenda, and our goal is not to try to use him, use the things that he's given to us in the scriptures, somehow support our agenda, but we need to come in from the scripture and understand him, understand his agenda, and how to align with him. That's what you see happening in the series that we're gonna be in in Isaiah. Isaiah talks about this king. And Isaiah talks about him from within a social location that, to use the theological term, is a mess. The Israelite leaders of his day are corrupt. The people are no better. Power, power, politics are more important to them than justice. God and his ways are rejected. That's the context into which God speaks through Isaiah about a coming king, and God does not speak to them so that they go, oh, okay, you know what, things are bad now, but at some point, someday, God will straighten it all out, we'll just have to hang on. Instead, God expects that by talking about this future coming king, that it will impact the way that his people live in the present moment. That's the king that we're gonna study over this next, these next several weeks for Advent, because we also need that kind of help living in our day. So we're gonna start this series in chapter 11. We're gonna look at three things this morning. We're gonna try to answer these questions. First, who is this king? Second, what will he do? And third, what does that mean for us now? Who is this king, what will he do, and what does this mean for us today? And I need to warn you, there's a lot that's here. We're gonna touch on it real quickly. It'd be really good if you took some time later this week and meditated on it later. So let me urge you, take good notes, maybe you even want to listen to the podcast again later on in this week, because what God says here is really rich. It's well worth your time to spend making sure that you really soak in it. So first, who is this king? He is, verse 1, a shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is King David's father, so the, Di- the Davidic dynasty can be said to come from Jesse, But when Isaiah looks at the line of kings that have come from David, he says, there's no tree here. (laughs) There's no fruitfulness, there's no branch, there's no power, there's no glory. It's just a stump, that's all that's left. Doesn't mean that David's line has died out. It means that the kings are morally corrupted, that they have no power, no real power. They are so out of touch with God that they might as well be dead. You can think about the most recent king, King Ahaz, When he ascended the throne, he discovered he had a problem. The nations to the north of him had created a coalition because they wanted to resist the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the dominant world power of the day. And they insisted that Ahaz join them or suffer the consequences from them. Isaiah came to Ahaz and he counseled him. He said, trust God. Don't put your trust in human beings, in some kind of human power to resist this coalition. But Ahaz ignored him. Ahaz called on Assyria instead to help him against this coalition. That human power felt more real, felt more certain to him. And so he put his trust, he put his confidence in what he could see in Assyria. Assyria did help him at a huge cost. They reduced Israel to a vassal state. They imposed their rule over Assyria. And that experience did not cause Ahaz to pause, to think about what he'd just done, to repent of his confidence in all things Assyrian. Instead, he extended that same confidence to the area of religious, to the religious sphere as well. He visited Assyria to swear loyalty to their king, but while he was there, he saw an Assyrian altar that he thought would actually be an improvement on Israel's altar. So he drew up plans for this new one and insisted that his altar replace the one that God had designed. And he didn't see that as a problem. He saw that as progress, as developing uh, religion. He didn't recognize that God had his reasons for why he had to be worshipped in a specific way. That it pointed forward to something beyond that present moment of worship. Ahaz blew over top of that and made other adjustments to the temple as well. He moved the furnishings around that God had put in certain places, again, to anticipate this coming Messiah. Ahaz incorporated pagan rituals into the life of Israel. He passed his son through the fire. It was a way of offering him to an idol. The tree of David, this tree that was supposed to spring from the uh, man whose heart was after God's own heart, had become a stump. It was corrupt, corrupt spiritually, corrupt morally. It had no life in it. And what was true of the kings was also true of the people. Back in chapter 6, God told Isaiah that he was going to have a ministry that was going to be a little rough because his ministry was going to harden people's hearts against God's words. It was was going to cause them to be blind and deaf to the purposes of God. And when Isaiah sort of shocked, says to God, For how long, Lord? How long is this going to be the case? God responds to him, chapter 6, verse 11, by saying, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, but as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So if you've been working your way through Isaiah, you've come across chapter 6 already. And here, that's the picture that you've been carrying in your mind since chapter 6. What's that picture? It's devastation as far as you can see. Ruined fields, cut down trees, a landscape wiped out just sort of dotted here and there with stumps. You keep on reading in the book and you discover that God used Assyria as his axe to cut Israel down. But then Assyria became angry, thought too highly of its own power, became arrogant. And so God, chapter 10, says they'll be cut down as well. So when you finally get to chapter 11, you turn the page into chapter 11, you're left with nothing but stumps everywhere you look. God's people, the enemies of his people, they're all cut down. Leaders and people alike, the result of human arrogance and self reliance is to have no life. But then you read chapter 11 and, and, and you look, and, and here in this one stump, something is happening. There's this little shoot, and this shoot is coming up out of that stump. The stump of Jesse looks as dead and lifeless as all the rest, and you discover it's not. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. There's life here. It's life that's gonna grow. It's gonna grow into its own branch. It's the branch that's gonna bear fruit. And as you read through the rest of chapter 11, you discover that this fruit is going to be righteousness and peace. That this shoot is not simply gonna bring righteousness and peace to Israel, but to the whole earth. So that verse 11, people from all over the world now come to him. This shoot from the stump is big. So big, you can't even compare him to David. That's normally how every king after David was evaluated. It was determined as to whether or not he was like his father David, and whose heart was locked onto God. This king, however, is far greater than David ever was. You learn a little bit about him in verse 2. He's completely saturated with the Spirit of the Lord dependent on the Spirit of the Lord, so much so that verse three, he delights in the fear of the Lord. He can't imagine anything better than being in awe of God. Why is that? Because verse five, when you strip away all of his outer garments, underneath all of them, what clings most closely to him is righteousness, faithfulness, the same things that are most true of God. And that's when you realize David was a man after God's own heart, And yet his heart strayed at times. This new shoot coming up from Jesse's stump will have a heart that doesn't. He will surpass David in his love for God. He'll surpass David in what he accomplishes for God's people. And so it's not right to compare him to David because he goes beyond David. It's in a category all by himself. That's why even though he's descended from David, Isaiah says, actually, you have to think bigger here. You can't afford to think of him as a shoot from the stump of David. He's not a continuation of what David started. It's not a continuation of the arrogance and the decline of David's line. You have to go one step back further to David's father, Jesse, because this king is a new and a better David. He's a greater David. And he's even more than that. He springs up from the stump of Jesse, verse one, but go to verse 10. And it talks about him as the root of Jesse. He not only comes from the Messianic line traced through David, but he's the source of the Messianic line. He's the origin of the family that he's born into. Now you put yourself back in the Old Testament, you read that and you think, I don't get that. How can the shoot from the stump and the root of the stump be the same person? How can the one who is born into Jesse's family also be the source of life for that family? How does that make any sense? And you realize that God gave to Isaiah enough wisdom, enough illumination that he could pose the puzzle of shoot and root plainly in chapter 11, but he doesn't give the solution here. And no one had a solution until centuries later when Jesus came, until the God that made all that is Was born as a baby to a woman that he had made. This was the hope for Israel, that new life would be born into a failed human dynasty, life that did not depend on that dynasty, but life that was great enough to create that dynasty, life that was great enough to overcome its corruption and overcome its deadness. That was Israel's hope. That's what they needed as they saw the ruin of their society, and it's what you and I need as well. Their hope is what? It's our hope. It's this king who comes with his own life and with his own power. That's point number one. That's who this king is. Point number two, what does he do? Three things we'll talk about here. One, he eliminates wickedness. Two, he transforms the world. And three, he brings unity to our diversity. Take them one at a time. First, he eliminates wickedness. This one, verses 3 to 4, does not make decisions based on appearances. He doesn't judge based on what his eyes see or what his ears hear. doesn't judge on who is most powerful or most attractive or who can get him ahead. Instead, he has a different criterion. He judges based on the righteousness and the faithfulness that are so essential to who he is. And that means that he doesn't make decisions based on what someone else can do for him. He makes decisions based on what is fair and right, based on this external standard outside of people that all people are then subject to. He doesn't base his judgment on a standard that prejudices some people above others, but one that makes a common judgment over all of us. He doesn't get caught up in the problem that everybody does who worships power. If you, think about, if you think that putting your trust and confidence in human power, in what you can see, is what's going to give you the best life, that will make a, you a slave to anyone who can increase your power. Because you'll make decisions then, not based on what is best and right, but you'll make decisions based on who can make you stronger than you already are. Which means you're going to compromise. You'll have to if you want more power. You'll make decisions against the poor and the meek. Those people who in that moment cannot do anything for you. You'll decide against them because they don't have anything that they can give you to make you stronger. And so you'll judge unfairly. This king doesn't judge like that. Rather, verse 4, With righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. This king doesn't need any more power. The words of his mouth are enough to eliminate wickedness from the earth. And again, you get a little hint here of divinity within this human shoot from Jesse. Only God can create and only God can govern this earth simply by speaking it. This king has that kind of power and because he has that kind of power he doesn't need to curry favor with anyone so he makes sure that those who are poor those who are powerless are treated in exactly as fair a manner as those who are powerful and in doing that he removes the wicked from the earth but then secondly when the wicked are all gone he transforms this world verse 6 the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them." What are you being told there? You're told that the predator and the prey will live together without fear, in peace and harmony. There's something fundamental about their natures that's been changed, altered. Verse seven, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The carnivores are now vegetarians. And it's not just the adults. That change extends down to their young. The young lie down together. Their fundamental physiology is changed. It's not just one generation. It's now changed permanently. Verse 8, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Think back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, God promised that he was going to put hatred between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between their offspring, ultimately points forward to Christ, but also to the rest of us. And that hatred is what? It's now gone. Verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That knowledge of God does what? It drives out the curse. It resets the world. It's a new creation. It's not just the old creation back without sin. Fundamentally, something has been altered about all the things that are part of this old creation. It's a world where nature is no longer antagonistic. Nature is now reconciled to itself. It's a world that's no longer at war with itself. It's committed to the good of each of its parts. And please don't be tempted. A lot of people have been to say, well, you know what, that, that, that's not really real. That's just a metaphor. It means violent people and gentle people, well, they'll finally get along together in heaven. Okay. That doesn't make any sense. The earlier part was not metaphorical, right? The king dispensing justice and eliminating wicked people. That was real, right? That that the wicked are gone. You want that piece to not be metaphorical. You want that piece to be real. And you read that as real. Why then would you not read this one as real? There's no break between that section and this one. No indication that we should read this section any less realistically than we did the other one. Besides, if it is meant to be metaphorical, if the animals are there to represent human beings, why add in human beings? Why introduce a human being who leads the former predators and the former prey? You realize this is not a description of human relationships, it's a description of the new creation of human beings finding their right place within a reordered world, of leading the animals, finding their place in a very real physical earth that we will be part of. That's our hope as followers of God, that we enter into a very physical world, but one that has been reset, reordered. A real physical earth where humans no longer hurt and damage God's world. Where we are restored to carry out our God-given mandate of taking care of it. And so even children in this new creation, verse six, little child, will have a sense of how to shepherd the animals, how to lead them, how to be involved in their lives for good. And the animals will follow that leading because they are not better off left to themselves. Nature is not better all by itself. They're better off when humanity retakes its place in ruling this earth for good in a way that does not hurt or destroy any part of it. And yet even here you get hints that that this continues on, right? This is just the beginning. Verse six talks about a little child. Verse eight talks about a nursing child and a weaned child. A little child, a nursing child, a weaned child. This is what takes place while humanity is still very young. While humanity is still in its infancy, before eternity has really started to get rolling along. If that's the case, if this is what the little humanity will be doing, what do you suppose caretaking this earth will look like as the human race matures, as it develops, as as we grow over the next few thousand millennia? None of us have yet begun to imagine what it will be like to live forever under this king in a renewed and restored world. And honestly, I wish we could just spend the rest of the afternoon talking about this together. It's an amazing king, this one who eliminates wickedness, who transforms the world, and who brings unity to our diversity. This king, verse 10, will stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He'll stand as a signal for the peoples, for the nations. Other versions will translate it. He'll be a banner for all peoples. He will be that which draws and attracts the attention of the rest of the world. And he'll do that for a purpose. Verse 11, standing there as a signal for all the nations, he will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. Isaiah then gives you this long list of other nations. And what he's doing, if you map them out geographically, is he's giving you all four compass points. And so you have this picture here of the king being the focal point of the rest of the world. The king who uses his power, not to be powerful, but he uses his power to rescue his people. It's the second time that he's extending his hand to do so. Think back to that first time where he extended his hand and brought the Israelites up out of Egypt out of a slavery that they could not rescue themselves from. He saved them. And now here he stands, a signal, a banner, rescuing people, not from one nation, but from all over the world, saving his people. And you have this beautiful picture of radically diverse people all doing what? All coming to him. And as they come to him, to his resting place, They're also simultaneously coming closer to each other. They don't lose their diversity. They each come from different ethnicities and cultures. They don't put that aside. You can tell that this one over here, this one came from Assyria, this one came from Egypt. Those over there, they came from Pathros and Cush. These came from Elam and Shinar. This one came from Hamath. And those over there, they came from the coastlands. They came from all over the world. You can tell that they're from different backgrounds. But their differences are no longer the most significant thing about them. Because now something calls them together in their diversity. There's an underlying unity to them, a commonality. Something unites them, the king. The king unites them. They're not called first to a common cause, to a something. They're called to a someone. They're called first to this person and it's as they come to this king, to his resting place, that they are finally at home with him. And they discover that they are finally at home with each other. And so they neither hurt nor destroy each other. They fit perfectly into this renewed world. Their diversity is no longer cause for separation. Let me say it this way, it's cause for celebration. That's what the king will do. He'll eliminate wickedness, transform the world and unite us in our diversity. So given one, who this king is and two, what he does, finally, what does this mean for us now? God gave this prophecy to Israel in the middle of a ruined social order with corrupted leaders. But it wasn't to give them hope for the future only, it was to impact how they lived in the middle of their own day. How does this help us live in our day? Let me give you three suggestions only. First, let this sober you. Let this humble you. For all the giftedness of the human race, for all of our promise, humanity does not have the ability or the resources to fix what's wrong with us. The best dynasties start well, they end badly. We don't have the power to change our own bentness. We certainly don't have the power to change the bentness of the creation, of what's wrong in the rest of the world. We feel the wrongness of the world in which only the strong survive, where predators live by destroying those who cannot protect themselves, where the powerful take advantage of the poor and the meek. We grow up in that world. We realize it's kind of normal here, but we also feel that's really not the best that it could be. We feel that, at the same time, that's not within our power to change that. So what do we do? We write utopias that we can't bring about. And we write utopias as well as dystopias. The dystopias outnumber the utopias. And we find that we often do live out the dystopias. Let this humble you. You, We need to think less highly of ourselves. I recently read, I think it was in G.K. chesterton and I can't remember. I read that the doctrine of original sin is the one that you can empirically verify today. The doctrine of original sin has plenty of evidence of it all around. It's in our lives, it's in our nations, and yet it's the one doctrine that humanity stubbornly resists believing. All you have to do is go back 100 years or so and start adding up the number of wars, the genocides, Just try to count the dead. The evidence for the doctrine of sin is overwhelming. Or try to count where and how racism has expressed itself around the globe. Try to count how many different countries, how many different societies it's expressed itself. Try to determine how many hundreds, how many thousands of years those racist attitudes have grown festered and developed in those societies. Try to count how many different ways people take advantage of each other the evidence for the doctrine of original sin is everywhere. It's easy to find. What's hard to find is evidence that human energy poured into human philosophies can make a permanent, lasting difference in our fight against evil, in our fight against sin. You can't find that evidence. There is no society that has gotten better and better and better and better and better that has straightened out all its problems, whose citizens think, man, this just can't get any better. You can't find that evidence, and yet we stubbornly cling to the belief that we're not so bad. We can fix ourselves, just give us a little more time. We need to be more humble. That's a good thing, by the way, to be humble. It doesn't lead to apathy. It doesn't mean that we quit fighting evil and injustice. It means that we are no longer arrogant in our fight against evil and justice. injustice. Arrogance is what destroyed Israel from top to bottom, infected the surrounding nations as well. When you read about this coming king, what he'll be like and what he'll do, how effortlessly he'll do it, that should lead us to say, man, <laughs> in light of that, we're not very good at being good. We need real help if we're going to live well. We need to be saved from evil, both the evil that's outside of us and the evil that's inside. That's number one. Allow this to humble you. Number two, more positively, align yourself now with this king and with his agenda. If righteousness and faithfulness are at the core of his being, you want them to be at the core of your own as well. How do you do that? Spend time thinking about what he's like and what he'll do. Spend time meditating on this chapter. Spend time meditating on what it means that he uses all of that immense power effortlessly on what, on behalf of the powerless. Meditate on him and you'll discover the spiritual truth that you become what you worship. Prize this king above everything else that you could value and you'll find that what is most important to him becomes most important to you as well. And then when you have those values inside, look around. Ask yourself, who do I see who is poor and meek? Who's at a disadvantage? Because they don't have access to the kind of resources that I do. Who's lacking economically, educationally, socially, spiritually? Who doesn't have what I have? Look around yourself and ask that, and then ask, how can I serve them with righteousness and equity? How can I help them get what they need and what they should have? Not because they have something to offer to me, but because this king has helped me when I didn't have access to what he has. And I just wanna give to someone else out of the fullness that I've been given. That's number two, practice living now the way that you will live for eternity. Align yourself with him and his purposes. And then third, prize unity as much as you prize diversity, it's countercultural to say at this moment. Our world is much better at defining how we're different than how we're similar. It's much better at emphasizing the differences among us in a way that actually keep us apart from each other. And if we're not careful in the church, we will learn from the world to see each other the way that our society sees each other. We will see each other primarily through the lens of our differences, but we'll do so in a way that's not helpful. We'll do so with fear, not confidence. You won't like me, we'll think, you won't understand me. Or we'll look through the lens of skepticism, not trust. You won't value me, you won't care about what I care about. We'll look through the lens of self-protection, not love. You're just gonna disappoint me. Why should I even try? I'm just gonna pull back. We'll look with resignation, not with optimism. I'm just gonna hang out with the people who seem more similar to me. That's safer, that's better, it's wiser, it's less disappointing. Even though there is absolutely no guarantee that those people will understand you, <laughs> or like you, or care about you, or wanna be with you any more than anyone else. If we are not careful then in the church, we will keep living out the social alienation that starts back in the Garden of Eden, that gets turbocharged at the Tower of Babel when language just splits us apart, that keeps breaking our world into these smaller and smaller isolated groups. Now, what's the antidote to that fragmentation? It's this king who extends his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people. And he does that on the cross. It's on the cross where he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, where he makes us one, where he gives us unity to go along with our diversity. See, unity is a given at this point for the church. We're not trying to create unity in the church. We've already been given unity. What are we trying to do? We're trying to live that unity out that unity that's already been given to us. It's not easy, we all know that. The more different we are, the harder it is. The more time we have to take, the more questions we have to ask, the more listening we have to do. But the differences don't have to keep us apart. Why? Because we are both at once diverse and united. Diverse because that's how God has made us, there's a goodness to that. United because that's how he's redeemed us. In our diversity, He's brought us to Christ who unites us. And that means then you have to prize both of those. You have to prize our unity just as much as you prize our diversity. You have to make much of our unity. You have to celebrate it. Maybe give a couple a little bit more, how, how do you do that in a world that keeps pri- telling you prize your diversity only? You have to find your primary identity in Christ, in this king who extends his hand to call you to himself. You have to let that be what is most fundamentally true of you. Be drawn first to what? To him. Let that be what is underneath all of those other identity layers inside of you. Find your identity there most, that you are connected to this king. And when you do that, you'll find that that's what connects you to all the rest of his people, even when all the rest of us don't share your utterly unique experiences of life. Our diverse elements are important. God has designed us to be uniquely diverse and our unity is just as important. Think about it this way. Is God one essence or three persons? You realize, yes, of course, he's both. Well, then by extension, are we one body or are we an innumerable number of diverse persons? And the answer again is we're both. We are both as he is both. Our world is currently consumed with our differences. And without this king, we would be two. With this king, however, we have the chance to live something better. We could be a diverse community. A community that's stronger for our differences, not weaker. A community that we can invite other people into so they can taste and experience what it would be like to live with this king in his world forever. And it's that opportunity which is what keeps our king delaying that future. The shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse, he's already done that. He's already been here. And yet he's not remade the world. We're living in this in-between time for now, where he is what? He's this signal, this banner that draws people to himself. And that's what Jesus said would happen. Toward the end of his life, he went to Jerusalem. He entered the city triumphantly. He was riding on a donkey, and the crowd cried out to him, Hosanna. It's a term that means in that language, it was a term of praise, but literally it means save. And so they're crying out, save, save us, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They recognize that this is the prophesied king who is going to save him and they're drawn to him. And it's not just the Jewish people. There are Greeks in that crowd as well. And they were also drawn to him. They wanted to see him. They wanted to be with him. Jesus sees all of this and he says to the crowd, John chapter 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He would be a signal, a banner lifted up, held up on a cross. It's on the cross that he extended his hand in order to save his people. And in doing that, He had to give up his life, and he did that willingly. He embraced that cost to give you what you could never give to yourself, an eternal future without wickedness in his presence united. That's why we not only come to him ourselves, it's why we call others to him as well, to this non-arrogant, uncorrupted leader, this one who's driven by righteousness, who makes sure that everyone gets justice, who has the power to do what he says, but who uses that power to bring about a world that you want to live in, a world where there's peace and harmony, where those reign because he draws us together by first drawing us to himself. Let's pray together. Lord God, I can hardly stand that that world is not yet. And yet, Lord, I have patience because you will finish what you've started. Lord God, Give us patience to wait on you, to wait on your timing, knowing that you're bringing many more people into your family, into your kingdom, your church. And Lord, allow us then to throw ourselves wholeheartedly to knowing you, to pursuing you, and to seeing the nations reached for the sake of what you have in store for the future. In Jesus' name, amen.